Welcome to Time to Pause with your host, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. This podcast shares inspiring and motivating stories from incredible veterinarians and industry professionals as they successfully multitask common career challenges and discuss topics relevant to the veterinary profession. And now, here's Dr. Kodaka. Dr. Caroline Brookfield is a veterinarian who has worked in a wide diversity of facets of veterinary medicine around the world and has been a locum tenens small animal relief veterinarian for most of her 20 years in practice. She rose to the challenge of building an online business and website from scratch, CanadaLocum.com, which provides employment matching services for Canadian veterinarians for the last nine years. Caroline is on track to complete her Certificate of Professional Management from the University of Calgary in 2018. As an e-commerce and online business owner, Caroline has practiced sales and marketing as an entrepreneur since 2013. Her passion for creativity is fueled with less traditional outlets such as online jewelry store, stand-up comedy, graphic design, and creatively connecting concepts to challenge existing paradigms. Caroline has worked in the pet food industry, research zoo, conservation and wildlife, small animal practice, academia, and lab animal medicine. With the late diagnosis of ADHD, Caroline has learned that the diversity of the veterinary profession is what drives her passion for the industry. The concerning trends of mental health issues among veterinary team members has inspired Caroline to share her journey of self-discovery to find and manage traits like perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and an inability to leave work behind. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Time to Pause. I'm so excited to talk to our guest today, Dr. Caroline Brookfield. She is doing some amazing things out there as a veterinarian and an entrepreneur. I think you'll really enjoy hearing her experiences and pearls of wisdom. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you and to hear about your career as a veterinarian. Before we delve into that, though, were you always one of these kids who wanted to be a vet, or how did you get started in this career? Yes, I was always one of those people that wanted to always be a vet, and uh, my situation was a little interesting in that my father was a professor at the local university, and that's where our vet school was. So I would see all of the vet students walking around with their veterinary college jackets on, and I thought, one day I'm going to have one of those. That's awesome. What was interesting was I remember feeling almost panicked when I was 14 years old because I didn't have any vet school experience or vet clinic experience. And whenever I tried to volunteer at a vet clinic, they would say, well, why would we have a 16-year-old when we've got, you know, university students that are wanting to volunteer? So it was actually very difficult for me to get animal experience in a vet setting. Yeah, I guess you had too many vets and and people volunteering to muck dolls or uh, walk dogs. Yeah, I can see why that would be a little bit difficult. How was your education to get to vet school? So in Canada, it's by residency, so it's a bit different than, maybe it's like the state schools in the U.S. So if you are an Ontario resident, which I was, then you have to go to the Ontario Veterinary College. 
Otherwise, mm. you have to move out of province and establish residency in a different province. So I was in the town in the vet school that I was designated to go to if I wanted to go to vet school. So uh, you didn't have to move away and start with new friends and new uh, neighborhood, et cetera. So that must have been at least a little reassuring. Or was that smothering? Well, it was very familiar, which was probably good. Um, but as soon as I finished that school, I, I left that town. It was kind of, I'd been there my whole life and uh, I was looking for a change. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. How did you find veterinary school? Uh, I, you know what? It was probably the most, you know, what is it, five years at that time. Um, it feels like such an expanded part of my life. If I look at another five-year chunk of my life, I don't feel like it was packed with as many experiences and emotion so I mean I love veterinary school it's so nice to be with a group of people that kind of got you you know like we all seem to kind of get each other and we had a pretty large class I, I don't know for the US schools it was like 105 people in our class and we, we really gelled really well it was a great experience for me sounds like you were a nice tight-knit group mm-hmm yes we were well, after vet school what were your next steps well, it was funny, through vet school, so one of the reasons I chose to go to vet school was because I have a diversity of interests, and after going through the process of my son getting diagnosed with ADHD, it's pretty clear to me I have that as well. I actually was going to be a zoo vet when I went through vet school, and I was on track to do that, and finally decided I didn't want to do four more years of school, and I didn't want to decide, I, I wanted more flexibility in where I could choose to live and locate. I had done a practicum in Florida at the White Oak Plantation with, you know, wild and, and zoo species. And I had some friends down there. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll move to Florida. It's hot and it's fun. So I went down to Ormond Beach, Florida for the first year after I graduated. And you were in small animal practice at that time? Yes, it was small animal practice. And then I also did emergency practice kind of on my weekends off to, to make some extra money. And how was that experience? Was it, it sounds like it was a, a choice that you were able to make easily in that you, you already identified some of your reasons for choosing Florida. How was that first job for you? It, it was good. I mean, I graduated in 1997, so I was pretty much before Google and Internet, uh, so it was a very different way of practicing than today. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the clients and I enjoyed doing everything. You know, we didn't have any referral internal medicine specialists or anything. I think there was maybe one in Orlando. We didn't tend to refer things, so I really liked being able to jump in and just do the best I could for the patient. That was really fun. Yeah, and there's a lot of fun things in Florida. I mean, you know, I work up in Canada now and we don't have snake bites. In my area where I live now, we don't have heartworm. We don't really have fleas. <laughs> So uh, it was a little bit more exciting, I guess, working in Florida than presenting to complaints. Yeah. Well, heartworms coming and maybe some ticks and fleas too. So yes, <laughs> um, yes. You're, you're pretty have, well yes. without them. <laughs> yeah. So did you need mentorship during your first few years out, or did you find that you received it, or what were your experiences with regard to guidance and you're developing those skills in your early years? Yeah, I had, in my first job, I did have mentorship. There was a veterinarian that worked there part-time who was amazing, and she kind of helped me 
you know, learn the ropes and help me with surgery. And there were some other veterinarians with that practice as well. So if I was struggling with something, they would help pitch in and help. So I did find that very helpful my first year. And then I left that job um, to work in emergency practice where I had zero mentorship. And, uh, you know, that was okay. It was stressful, but, you know, it was, it was okay. And that, the reason I did that is because I then took a year and a half off and I traveled around Southeast Asia and Australia mm. and New Zealand. Tremendous. That's terrific. Wow, I'm so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> it was and and when, when, then, when then did you have your son? So was my it in vet school or in your no, first job? No, it was well after. So I graduated in 1997, and I didn't have my son until 2006, so nine years later. Oh, okay. So you, you did your traveling before then and saw some of the beautiful world. That's an amazing area of the, of the world, so I am jealous for, yeah. for sure. Now, I know that you also talked about your interest in zoo and wildlife and your experience with emergency. You've done some research in your past as well. Is that correct? Yes. So one of the things that I feel about with my, the way that I approach things is to try to say yes to more things than I say no to if it's something I'm not sure about. So uh, the research came up because I had been working for a local wildlife rehabilitation society doing their vet work and we were trying to get uh, vet students from the Calgary Vet School to rotate through and learn about wildlife and help us out and it turned out they needed a vet at the lab animal building um, until their full-time person was able to move there. They had hired someone so I did relief term there and then at that term I met Dr. Nigel Colkett who was doing some research on hemorrhagic shock in swine and needed someone part-time to help with that and I had two little kids so part-time worked for me and so that's the research that I did for three years at the University of Calgary. Oh wow that's wonderful. I think that working in a research lab or performing research is, is definitely more predictable schedule like you said for, for young kids and, and a good resource that a lot of vets can get into if that's their interest and passion. I'm curious, you graduated in 1997, you've had a lot of years out in practice, myself too, I'm not picking on you, <laughs> I've been out quite a bit, I graduated in 96. I was wondering if during your career you felt that there were any turning points to your career, your life, or strenuous situations where, you know, the routine changed a bit for you. Oh, Kimberly, my routine changes all the time. <laughs> That's like an every two to three year cycle for me. So a specific turning point. I can't think of a specific turning point, but I think when I find that I'm not meeting my core values and I'm not getting out of what I want to get out of the position or job that I'm doing, I decide to make a change. I'm not very hesitant about pivoting and changing direction. Now, how, did you, how do you do that? Because I know a lot of us actually find it very difficult to make change. Is this something mm -hmm. that you, you taught yourself or you acquired the skills? Is it an innate quality that you have? Or how, what's the process for you to say, okay, I'm, I'm upping and going and just dumping that? The process for me is very much managing and evaluating the risk like what's the upside, what's the downside, what's the worst that could happen. So leaving a, a job, for instance, if you don't have another job to go to, it's 
what's the worst that can happen? And so financially, I have to look at, in my, my mind, what is the worst that could happen? You know, for me, I'm not very risk averse. So, you know, we have a house, we have a mortgage, and worst that could happen is that we have to move to a different house or rent a house. So to me, that's not the worst that could happen. The best that could happen could be that I, and then I look at the best that could happen. So the best that could happen would be that I'm happier, it'll open up more space for me to do something different, it'll give me new skills, uh, it'll stretch me. One of the places I love to live is at just the edge of my comfort zone. I think of life as a lot like a beach. So, you know, a lot of us live on the sand under our umbrella, reading a book, you know, it's very comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and not many of us want to be out in the ocean swimming with no life jacket and no life preserver. But I love to be in the waves. I love to just kind of be in the edge of that comfort zone because I learn so much about myself and stretch myself so much more than if I just stay under the umbrella, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a great visual. I, I can see it. I get it. You know, one of the things that I've found, I don't find it easy to live on my outside of my comfort zone or to stretch myself. I have to consciously make the decision and, and lean into it, as it were. But mm -hmm. the amazing thing that I've found over my life of doing that is all my anxieties of the horrible things that are going to happen <laughs> don't happen. Right. So, you know, I can I can make a list of, you know, the terrible consequences of, of this, that, and the other, and the what-ifs. But I generally find if you, if you lean into the discomfort a little bit, you find a job, you, you meet someone, you relocate to a bigger and better, you know, I really find that typically always an improvement or something good on the other side. So I, I think that finally as time has gone on, I'm able to lean in with more comfort because I know, okay, well, you know, last time things worked out, chances are it's going to work out this time. That's something that's helped me as I, as I make decisions in my career and, and my life. It's great advice to encourage people to, to make the changes and to push yourself. Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the things I always say too is, you know, that whole expression, it's not my expression, but there's no failure, there's only feedback. So no matter what you do, you know, as long as you don't die and, you know, you don't have serious consequences, you know, you're going to learn something from the experience. Yeah, and many of falling off the cliff may not happen. Now, one of the things that we have here in the United States, I, I need to mention that, that perhaps you don't have the, the pressure. We have a big financial pressure because of student loans when our graduates get out of that school. And I think that does put a lot of pressure on the decision-making aspect of leaning in. And I still think that there isn't a shortage of, of jobs for veterinarians. I think if you're a good veterinarian, you are able to advocate for yourself and get a good contract and work in a supportive job environment. That's definitely worth the risk of going. And you also do help yourself in the long term financially. I think the average debt uh, for vet students is 200 to $250. I, I do definitely feel for, for new graduates. It's oh, a, it's a yeah, big absolutely. burden that they have. Yeah, I don't know currently. I mean, I had student loans when I graduated. They weren't in that high number, and I do agree. I think that it's a crippling amount of debt. 
it's a totally different story when you're looking at never paying off those loans over your lifetime. I can't imagine. With your ability and your interest to push yourself to try new things, do you find that you have long-term goals preset that you'd like to do? Do you find that you're like, okay, I've, I've learned what I can learn from this experience. It's time to move on. How do you go about deciding when and how to challenge yourself and, and where to go, where to, to stay or get that next job? Well, most of my career, honestly, has been as a relief vet or a local consultant in Northern Canada. I do have goals. I find that I, I don't have especially long-term goals because I like to have the ability to be flexible and to see an opportunity. For instance, I worked at a very large pet food company here in Canada's technical services, and I wasn't looking for a job. In fact, I was headhunted for that job, and it was very difficult for me to make the decision because I wasn't looking for it. But in the end, I decided to, to go for it, and it was an amazing experience. I worked there for three years. I wouldn't change that experience for anything. So I think for me, I do have goals. Usually I try to do like a two- to three-year cycle so that I'm not looking too, too far ahead because I find it crippling if it's too rigid. But I find that if I stick with my core values and I just focus on what do I want my life to look like and then looking at opportunities and jobs and finding out if they fit in within that framework is more how I just make my decisions. Mm-hmm. At what did you make clear what your values and priorities were? I think to articulate them, it's probably only been in the last five, five to eight years as I've done a lot of personal development and learning about myself, which I think is very, very important. Before that, I probably instinctively knew them, but I couldn't articulate them as well as I can now. And it sounds like that's clarified things for you? Yes. I think learning more about myself and my personality type and my aptitudes and the way I'm wired was the, one of the most liberating things. When you had asked me earlier about a turning point, I guess on reflection, maybe that would be a turning point is knowing about myself and what strengths I have and also knowing that Parts of my personality that I previously considered flaws are just, that's just the way I am. And that makes it easier for me to be strong in the areas that I'm strong in. That's great. Revelation for you to have. Do you have some advice on how other veterinarians might get in touch with themselves at that level? Yeah, I mean, there are a ton. Some of the first but exposure I had to this other than the typical Myers-Briggs that we kind of do in high school or whatever. I had taken a course, I'm taking a certificate of professional management and one of those courses was on communication. And we basically spent the first two days doing personality tests. So there's the DISC test and I did that one. And then there's the Herman brain inventory. And there's a ton of free online tests that you can do. There's uh, Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies. There's a, a plethora of free online tools. I think you can do the Herman Brain Inventory online for free. So there are a ton of different tools you can use to learn about yourself. And then I had a business coach first, the businesses that I have, and I had this amazing experience with a fellow down in San Diego who does a meditation with long-range rifles. <laughs> and he works with people who meet a specific uh, criteria of being driven personalities. So it's a very layered approach. So I think i if I were to give advice to anybody, which I don't really like to give advice, but I would ask people to consider doing, starting with some free online tests and just see where that takes them 
see if that gives them some information mm -hmm. that's helpful, and then go from there. I think anything that can give an individual some confidence and security in themselves to grow from and to approach life with is just going to make them better, stronger people, more resilient. So I think that's sound advice. What, during your career, would you say your biggest challenges have been and how have you approached them? Well, for me, because I, what I call myself multi-passionate, my challenge is finding all the time to do all the things that I want to do and learn all the things I want to do. I'm one of those people I take, you know, 14 books out of the library and I read one and then I end up with $20 in fines for the rest of them. For me, <laughs> it's finding the actual physical time to do the things I want to do. And have you found a way of managing that yet? No. <laughs> I just try to focus. I'm like, no, no, I'm reading this book now. Let's, let's read this book. And when I'm finished this book, I'll go to the next one or the next thing. I've become a little bit of a uh, scheduler. I find if I write things down and plan out my day and mark it, I'm a little bit better on what I've got to do. Or sometimes yeah. just simply thinking about it. I know that certain tasks are better to do in the morning mm -hmm. than in the afternoon when I'm tired and uh, there's, there's a multitude of things uh, coming my way from home and stuff like that. So that's a little cheat that I've found to be effective. Yeah, it's funny that works for a lot of people and knowing the way I am. And, you know, if you look at, for instance, this most, Gretchen Rubin talks about different tendencies, so I'm a rebel. And I'll actually, if I schedule things, I look at my schedule and I'm like, screw you schedule, I'm not going to do that today. So, <laughs> so I tend to just have a floating task list that works best for me. So I think what's the number one thing I have to do today and that gets done. And then I have a list of other things and I, I work my way through. But yeah, it's a work in progress. But scheduling it out and putting it in a schedule works for a lot of people. Um, that hasn't worked as well for me, but I think one of the things that's important to say to yourself, too, is that just an excuse. So, like, I know myself pretty well, and I might say, well, scheduling doesn't work for me. I can't do it. But if I'm not getting the things done that I need to get done, then I need to change something. So I need to make scheduling work for me at, or somehow. I think there's a balance between knowing yourself and knowing what you're capable of, but also challenging yourself to rise to the occasion and a new challenge to, you know, make your life better. Good point. I actually think it's funny that you should say that because one of the comments I was going to make was I've had to learn that I don't need to do everything on my list and mm -hmm. it's okay. Mm -hmm. And that the earth isn't going to stop turning if I don't do, you know, 10 out of 10 things or even 6 out of 10 things. You know, I know that a lot of the times, especially new grads are coming out of school or I think just when I was younger, I put a lot of pressure on myself to, if I was only more organized, more rigid, I would get all these things done. And then as I started having kids and family and a house and, and work and cases, and I was just like, something's got to give. <laughs> yeah. And so you get a little, a little more able to uh, let things go. But it was with a lot of guilt initially. And then I learned it was okay. And that was probably one of the biggest breakthroughs that I've had because it's really given me a release and some peace of mind. Yeah, I can see that, that you want to 
make sure, you know, it's important to feel like you're getting things done every day, but also giving yourself the grace that you're not going to be perfect all the time. That's good. That's definitely good. And I think that comes back to my what's the worst that's going to happen. If I look at my list and laundry's not on, laundry's on the list, for instance, I'd be like, what's the worst that's going to happen if I don't do my laundry today? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that we have to give ourselves the permission to be as kind to ourselves as we usually are to other people. Yeah, be flexible. Absolutely. So what have your biggest joys during your career been? Uh, I love to help, you know, see people light up when we can do something for them, whether that's a client with a pet or whether I was in a technical services role helping a veterinarian with a nutrition case. I just love connecting with people and make people laugh and help people see, have some joy in their day. That would be my biggest joy. It's a very, very overarching, not very specific. No, that sounds like a great thing. It's very rewarding and satisfying. How did you learn to communicate and connect with people? Because that's a big part of being a veterinarian and connecting with clients and owners. Absolutely. And when I went to school, I don't know if it was the same for you, Kimberly, we had essentially zero communication or training on how to communicate with clients. So it was very much a trial and error. I think for me, and then as I got more interested in communication, I've done some more research on, on that specifically. I think being a relief vet helps as well. In that situation, you're jumping into a new team. You've got basically three stakeholders. You've got the people you're working with, the veterinary team. You've got the clients who are your customers, and you also have the, the veterinarian or company who hired you to be the relief vet. By doing that, I very quickly learned how to develop rapport quickly and develop trust quickly. Do you have any tips that you found that work? I think ask questions. Ask a lot of questions. I find that um, that's a sales technique where instead of telling somebody or directing, you just ask. And I find that if I ask enough questions, they kind of come to the same conclusion that I do but I don't have to tell them. So it's less, less directive and more collaborative. So I guess if I had one tip, it would be to ask more questions. Great advice. Do you have a daily routine or something that you do that helps keep you refreshed or balanced or energized for life work and kind of keeps you, keeps you going? Yeah, that that can be a challenge because I have a different day every day and my time, my schedule works. The one thing that I've started doing regularly is a Zen style meditation. So I do that every day for 10 minutes. If I I can't do it for 10 minutes, I do it for two minutes. It's an open-eyed meditation, which is a different type of meditation. And I also try to exercise. So I try to do either yoga or a workout, like I did fitnessblender.com this morning, just a 30-minute workout as much as I can. Trying to, trying to move and trying to move my body and my mind, I guess, is kind of the two themes I try to work on every day. And I'm sorry, I, what kind of meditation did you say it was? It's a, it's a Zen-style meditation, and it's an oh, eye. Oh, Zen, okay. Yeah, and it's an open-eyed meditation, so you don't close your eyes, you sit and, um, and you focus on a spot for, for the time that you're in your, your mm-hmm. sitting practice. Nice. That's great advice. And you know the Buddhist expression or something like that, that everybody should meditate for 20 minutes a day. And for those people who don't have time to to meditate every day, they should meditate for an hour. (laughs) Yes. 
Yes, that's so true. <laughs> I, I, I should probably meditate for uh, two based on my schedule, but um, <laughs> I think that's a wonderful thing that you do for yourself and very kind to yourself. Sometimes if I'm hurrying off to, for instance, a release day or something where I'm busy, sometimes I'll just get to the clinic and I'll be early and I just do it in my car, you know, for two minutes. I try to just do it for even a few minutes if I can. Mm-hmm. Good for you. So do you have any lessons or pearls of wisdom that you might like our audience to be able to take home or implement after hearing this podcast today? I don't know if there are lessons so much. It's just things that have worked for me. I think number one is know and be kind to yourself. But the other thing that I find, because I am more of an abstract thinker, you know, and I'm not as linear, is that there is always an option. Even... If you think there's no option, there is probably an option. It might not be the most comfortable option, but uh, you can always find a, a way to change your life in a small way if you just are creative. Mm-hmm. I agree. And actually, I didn't want to get off the line without speaking of being creative. Um, <laughs> I believe one of your, I don't know if I should say a hobby or passion, is a stand-up comedy. So um, how do you incorporate that into your veterinary work and well-being? Well, you know, I make jokes with my clients if that's appropriate sometimes. I don't know that I really use my stand-up to incorporate into my into my vet practice. I think just the practice of being creative, you know, I have a lot of creative pursuits. I think one message is that everybody is creative. And one of the research topics that I'm doing for myself is reading articles on creativity and using functional MRIs to see how we are creative. And the bottom line is everybody is creative. So I think just stand-up comedy is just one of the things that I do to try to exercise my creative brain you know, to play in those waves at the edges of my comfort zone and just to make my life more rich for myself. And sometimes it's not more complicated than that. Where do you get your material from? Well, I, I started by doing a, a workshop and I was mostly doing vet and mom material. And I'm at a point now where I'm trying to do a really tight five-minute set. That's something in common. You get like a five-minute set. And it's difficult to do both the mom and the vet joke. So right now I'm focusing on vet veterinary medicine so that's uh, the joke that I make and uh, I'll probably expand on that as I do more and more comedy but a lot of people don't realize comedy is very very scripted and very rehearsed and so to get a really good five minute set it it takes a lot of time so start building on that as I get more experience. Great laughing is a wonderful outlet in a way of keeping Levity and I would imagine good hormones circulating and a variety of other things. So I, I think it's a good way to diffuse. However, since you're the one that's on the hot seat, so relaxing. Well, usually you go and you're one of many comedians. So while I'm not laughing too much while I'm doing my set, I get to laugh before and after my set. Yeah, no, that's great. There's a, a, a veterinary comedian out of Colorado. Are you familiar with him? Oh, I don't know. What's his name? Gosh, I'll have to get it for you. So that's great. Well, thank you for sharing all of your wonderful experiences and your energy and motivation to constantly push yourself in different directions with different skills. I think that's a terrific example for others to emulate. 
if anyone from our audience would like to find you or connect with you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, probably the simplest way would be I have a website. It's carolinebrookfield.com, or you can reach me on email at carolinebrookfield at gmail.com. All right. Well, that's terrific. I really appreciate you taking the time to pause with us today. Thanks, Kimberly. It was so much fun chatting with you.